Thanks for listening to another message from Life Christian Church. We hope it challenges and encourages you and helps you to grow in your faith. Don't forget, download our app to stay up to date with what's going on at Life. Share your prayer requests or pray for others. Read the Bible online and much, much more. Simply search for Life Christian Church in your app store. Hey, uh, just wrapping up the kind of the short series that we've done, just looking at uh, the nature of love. This is love. And uh, I want to jump straight in on what I think uh, today is uh, one of the most well-known passages concerning love in all of literature, not just uh, in the Bible, but uh, something that's recognised even outside of uh, the walls of churches, uh, a passage that people are very familiar with. Uh, we actually call it the love passage uh, from 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1. Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. And to verse 13, And now these three remain, faith, hope and love, but the greatest of these is love. Now, if you've been to a wedding in recent times, there's a fair chance uh, that that passage was referred to or read out. It is probably the single most requested Bible verse to be spoken of at weddings. Here's a question. What is the biggest need in your life? What's the biggest need in my life? I would suggest that beyond the basic necessities, the things that we need just to sustain our life and keep our bodies going, I think the greatest need is love. Further than that, I'd also suggest the area that perhaps we most fall short in is in expressing love. It can be an increasingly in our world today, we're in a world that is becoming so, so self-focused. Uh, our culture... Um, has promoted me as being the most important person on the face of the earth. And so we are always looking out for number one, as the old expression goes. We are always so focused on pursuing our goals and our dreams and our ambitions. We become so self-focused, so preoccupied with ourselves that we actually stop 
paying attention to or caring about or even loving others. And I'm not saying the things that preoccupy our time, the things that preoccupy our mind, the things that demand our attention. I'm not suggesting that they're wrong things. But for us as God's people, we need to be reminded that the most genuine, the most convincing expression of our Christian faith is love. John 13 and 34, Jesus' words, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Paul writes to the church in Rome, Romans 13 and 8, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. We could actually spend a week just unpacking that verse alone. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1 and 22, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. Peter is saying the evidence of your faith, the evidence that the Spirit of God is at work in you, is the sincere love that you express for others. 1 John 4 and 7, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Or down to verse 11, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And friends, we could go on and on and on, but the Bible makes it very, very clear that the most powerful and genuine expression of our faith is not the knowledge that we have or the gifts that we might have or how well we have our doctrine in place or how wonderfully disciplined I am to, to, to uh, follow scriptural principles for my life. The most genuine expression of our faith is our capacity to love. And those other things, yes, they are vitally important. But as Paul reminds us, without love, those things are nothing. If all that we do as God's people does not have a foundation in love, Paul tells us we're wasting our time. And the truth is, if the Spirit of Christ is in us, if the Holy Spirit is dwelling within us, one of the outworkings of that has to be Christ's love expressed through us. We must be people who love. Now, it's important that we just briefly define the nature of love because, again, it's become a concept that is Hugely confused in our culture today. And as I've spoken on this on previous occasions, also we have the understanding that our English language doesn't help us. Because we got one word, love. And I can say I love my wife. I can also say I love chocolate. I can also say I love summer. Now we know we're actually talking about three very different things. 
but we've only got one word. I, I think the Greeks probably anticipated this to be a problem and so they've got at least eight different words that all translate into English as the one word love. But as you look at it, for example, they've got the word eros, which talks about a deeply romantic love. Then they have the word phileo, which is a word given for brotherly love. They have another word for the love of family, that family has for one another. They have another word for a deeply committed love. They have another word for the love of self. And then there is the grandest word of all, which is the word agape. It's not used a lot, and perhaps it's because of what agape demands. Agape is the word used when describing God's love. And it is the highest form of love. It is the purest form of love. It is a, a, a love that is so freely given. It's not a love that is earned. It's not a love that is deserved, but it is pure. And in its purest form, it says, I just love you because I love you. Whether you love me back or not, I just love you. It's a love that is not dependent upon how it is received. It's a love that is given whether it's received or not. We actually find a beautiful picture of this agape love in Philippians 2 and 2. And Paul writes, he says, Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. In humility, consider others better than yourselves. Other translations say, consider others more important than yourself. And this agape love that we are called to express is a love that puts others first. It's a love that considers others and the needs of others as being more important than my own needs. How do you know when somebody loves you? Well, there's an important clue. You actually feel important to them. When do you start doubting somebody's love for you? Well, it's the opposite. When you no longer feel important to them. And this picture of love that Paul gives in Philippians 2, I tell you, it involves tremendous humility. That we consider, we are called to consider others more important than yourself to the extent, he says, that you look after not your own interests, but you look after the interests of other people. It's a beautiful picture. And then we go back to our opening verses. Again, Paul writing to the church in Corinth. 
And this is one of the most beautiful descriptions of love ever written. But it prompts a question, why particularly did he write those words to the church in Corinth? Well, I would think one of the reasons is because of all of the churches that Paul founded in the New Testament. This church in Corinth was problematic. They weren't growing in faith, incredibly immature. And perhaps they were most in need of having what love is clarified to them. But maybe they were also the church in most need of kind of getting their act together as far as expressing love to one another. And so there is a whole heap going on in the church in Corinth that prompted Paul to write this to them. First of all, they were a divided church. There were great divisions in the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 1 and 11, My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, well, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Another says, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptised into the name of Paul? I can see him writing that with a smirk on his face. And what he's saying is this. You guys, you're not in agreement. You've created cliques. You're arguing, listen to this, because you have aligned yourself with personalities. He could have written this to the church today. You've aligned yourself with personalities. And when you do that, you're always going to get division. They were defining themselves by who they liked the best. Who they rallied behind, who they supported. And friends, if we define a church by the people who lead the church, we're going to be in trouble. Because people are imperfect. People are flawed. And no leader, no, how, no matter how charismatic, no matter how dynamic, no matter how larger than life personality they are, they don't have it all. None of us are completely right. Listen to this. A church can only be defined by its commitment and surrender to Christ. Can I hear an amen? And we define a church by its following the agenda of God. We define a church by the work of the Holy Spirit amongst us. We do not define a church by the skills or personalities of its leaders or by the, the, the charisma or even by the gifts of one person over another. In fact, Paul says this, and I love this in 2 Corinthians 2 and 1. He says, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom or, you know, a YouTube channel with a billion hits. I was no great personality. 
I didn't come with eloquence, superior wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's, uh, men's wisdom, but on God's power. Paul's saying, that's what got you guys started. That's the foundation of this church. And even today, we often talk about different expressions of God's body, the church, in terms of our personal preference. Oh, I, we don't go to that church because we don't really like the music. Or we do go to that church because we do like the music. Or we don't go to that church because we don't really like the preaching. Or we do go to this church because we do like the preaching. Or we don't go to that church because we like the programs. Or we do go to this church because we do like the programs. Or friends... The question must be, is Jesus at the centre? Is Christ central to all we do, to who we are? Because the kind of agape love that the church needs to function has one source and one source only. It comes from Jesus himself being the Lord of the people who gather. And again, churches divide over all kinds of issues. Some say, well, I'm into Reformed theology. Some say I'm into Pentecostal theology. Some say, well, we're a traditional church. Others say, well, we're a more contemporary church. What did Paul say to the church in Corinth? I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's his message. Paul's saying, don't put me into some kind of box that is your personal preference. My message is Christ and Him crucified. And wherever you look at Paul's teaching, when you look at his writing, what does he talk about? What is his message? He's always talking about Jesus. He's always talking about Christ. He's always talking about what it means to be made right with Him. He's talking about His work in us. He's talking about His work through us. Paul sometimes had to address error that was going on in the church, but he didn't stand up in a pulpit and say, well, today I'm going to talk to you about uh, uh, how to make your marriage work. He didn't stand up and say, well, today I'm going to talk about being prosperous. He didn't stand up and say, well, today I'm going to tell you about how to fulfill your dreams and your goals and your ambitions. He didn't stand up and say, well, today's message is about how you can live a happy life. He had one message and one message only, and that was Jesus Christ and Him crucified, that you would know the power of His resurrection and that you would grow up in Him. And if we can get that right, let me tell you, it's going to impact your marriage. If we get that right, it's going to give us a purpose and a reason to live. But the church in Corinth had lost that. They'd, they'd become all caught up in personalities and styles. 
And friends, when anything other than Jesus becomes the primary criteria for the people to gather, there's always going to be division. Because anything else becomes my opinion versus your opinion, my preferences versus your preferences. And friends, that's not how the church of Jesus is built. We are called together in Christian community to live humbly under the Lordship of Jesus. So the church in Corinth, they had problems with division. They also had problems with discipline. It was a super undisciplined church. And when Paul writes to them, he talks about some of those things. There was sexual, sexual immorality going on that Paul describes of the worst kind. And we find out it was an incestuous relationship, a man having a relationship with his father's wife, his stepmother. And Paul says, not only are you allowing this, but it seems like you're, you're proud of it. You're doing nothing about it. And we read about that in chapter 4. In chapter 6, we read about them actually suing each other in court. They were having petty disagreements and actually taking it to the court instead of trying to resolve it. If you don't like something, I'm going to sue you. And Paul says, how dare you bring these matters before people who are outside of Christ? There was another issue where um, they were sharing the Lord's Supper together and some people would take the opportunity of skipping a meal at home because there was a free meal at church and they were making a meal out of communion and drinking so much communion wine they were actually getting drunk. So it's huge discipline problems. They're also fighting over spiritual gifts. You know, the self-righteousness of, well, I've got a gift and you don't and looking down their noses at each other. And that's why this chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians is there. It's the love chapter. And it's kind of beautifully sandwiched between teachings about gifts. Paul starts teaching about gifts, the gifts of the Spirit. And then he kind of takes a left turn, talks about love, and then he picks it up talking about the gifts of the Spirit again. And so in the midst of talking about spiritual gifts, Paul's saying, hey, let me pause. And I want to say this. I don't care what spiritual gift you've got. I only care that it's exercised in love. Love is the most important thing. It's not about you. It's not about your gift. It's not about your ability. The focus of your giftedness must always be other people. Then he identifies another problem in chapter 16, 1 Corinthians 16 and 1. Now about the collection for God's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income. So they weren't contributing financially to the church. And Paul says, listen, some of you are saying, well, God, you can have my life, but you can't tell me what to do with my finances. And he's saying, no, you set it aside. So there's a church here that was divided. There's a church here that was totally undisciplined. But they also had a problem with their doctrine, their core beliefs. And so Paul has to clarify a few things. 1 Corinthians 15 and 1. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you've believed in vain. 
So he's saying of first importance, number one in our doctrine, the foundation of our doctrine is that Jesus died, he was buried and was raised again from the dead. So he's clarifying their doctrine. So there's just a few areas where this church in Corinth was totally messed up. And let me say, it would be really, really easy to write that church off. But Paul, the great apostle, writes to them, invests into them to try and sort this mess out. And here in chapter 13, Paul says, even though you may have or you may think you have everything sorted out, that you may have all of these other things in place, unless... All of these things are expressed in love. They are meaningless. They are empty, clanging symbols and they will achieve nothing. Friends, the ultimate expression of godliness is love. Why? Because the Bible tells us that God is love. So what does godly love look like? Well, if you read Facebook feeds from self-righteous, angry Christians, that's not it. I'm going to read verses 4 to 8 again. Because there are 16 virtues that Paul says in these four verses that help us understand what love is. And importantly, what love isn't. So there are seven positives and nine negatives. So let's read it again. He says, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. I'm going to lead us in an exercise this morning. And I think I did this a number of years ago. And it's no less scary for me today than it was back then. But we're going to read this passage in three different ways. The first way we've just done, we've read it as written. It's beautiful. It makes perfect sense. The second way I want us to read it today is to take out the word love and put in the name Jesus. Let's see if that makes sense. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. He does not envy, he does not boast, he's not proud, he's not rude, he is not self-seeking. He is not easily angered, he keeps no record of wrongs. Jesus does not delight in evil, but he rejoices with the truth. He always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Jesus never fails. Does that make sense? It does, perfect sense. Sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? Because God is love and in Jesus we see God perfectly demonstrated in human form. Jesus is the embodiment 
of love. The third way to read it, here's where it gets scary. And I would suggest you do this privately. Don't read this out aloud in front of a group of people. You've got to be very embarrassed by what it reveals. But I'd also suggest that maybe we made a, make a practice of doing this every now and then with a humble attitude of submission in prayer before God. And the way we read it is to take out the word love and put your own name in there. Again, I would never do this publicly, even though I am this morning. Peter is patient. Peter is kind. He doesn't envy. He doesn't boast. He's not proud. He's not rude. He's not self-seeking. Peter is not easily angered. (laughs) He keeps no record of wrongs. He does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. He always protects, always trusts, always hopes always perseveres, Peter never fails. Bless you, Michael. I'll give you your crunchy later on. Friends, no question, this is a super revealing exercise. Does it make sense to put your name there? Doesn't ring quite as true as when Jesus' name is there. But it's a great exercise actually It's a diagnostic tool to let us know how we're doing. Uh, I can look at that. Maybe I tick a few boxes, but I've still got a long way to go. And friends, here's the thing. To be Christ-like is not to walk around with a false smile on your face, looking down your nose, with self-righteous judgment towards others, with the biggest possible King James Bible stuck under your arm. That's not being Christ-like. Being Christ-like is being patient and kind and not envying, and the list goes on and on, because God by his Holy Spirit, wants to reproduce his character in you. And I would suggest, again, it's a diagnostic tool, self-diagnostic. I would suggest that we are not growing in the things of God if those traits of love are not becoming increasingly evident in our lives. Because if you want a progress report, if you want some kind of spiritual scorecard, that exercise is it. Friends, what is it that is so vitally important to the church? What is it that gives the church of Jesus a ministry that is fruitful? What is it that makes the church significant? What is it that would make this church, what is it that would make this congregation, you and me, so incredibly fruitful and significant in this community? Is it our wonderful programs? Is it our great strategy? 
No. It's actually our love. Because what Paul is saying, all that other stuff, it's okay. But without love, totally empty. Programs are great only if they are meeting a need in and through the love of Jesus. Programs are a means to an end, not an end in themselves. God hasn't called us to run a bunch of programs and projects. What I pray that we would be is a church that loves one another first and then truly loves the people of our community because these are our times. This is our community. You're born into such a time and place as this. And God has called us to be Jesus to the world out there. Again, John 13 and 35, I'll invite the team back. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's where it starts. That people see how much we love one another. But then that they would see how much we love them. In fact, that's what people discovered all the time about Jesus. The Samaritan woman at the well just loved her. The woman caught in adultery, about to be stoned. Jesus didn't join in the judgmental anger of the crowd. He just reached out to her and loved her. Even the worst possible outcasts, the lepers, totally rejected by their community because of their disease. He reached out and loved them and touched them. My goodness, you don't touch lepers. And friends, this is getting back to basics. Because whatever else we do in this church, if we don't love, it's empty. Might keep us off the streets, keep us out of the trouble and give us something to do a few times a week. But that's it. Won't do anything for every, anybody at all. And the church increasingly is countercultural. But there's a positive side to that, aside from us just feeling marginalised. The positive is that what we have is also the antidote for all the woes that our world is currently expressing. There is an epidemic of loneliness. Christian love, of community, Christian love and community is the antidote for loneliness. There is an epidemic of fear. The hope and the peace of Christ is the antidote. There's a great concern about the future. As we introduce people to the love of Jesus, they discover an eternal future and hope. Friends, here's the challenge this week, our homework, if you like, this week. In that humble attitude of prayer, take that passage from 1 Corinthians 13, put your name in it. And say, God, 
How am I really doing at that? And then pray a simple prayer, God, transform, transform my heart. Make me a person who truly, truly loves. That the life and the love of God might flow through you and touch and enrich and to the glory of God transform other people's lives. So let me finish with the words of Jesus. Interestingly, on the night that he was betrayed, John 13, 34, a new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. Friends, can I say, if we get this right, the community that we're called to reach, they will be turning to us. They'll be knocking down our door. But this is a supernatural thing. We come in humility, acknowledging God, I can't love in this way. It doesn't come natural to me. I don't have that capacity, but you do. That agape love, God, it's a foreign thing in me, but I know it's something that you want to reproduce by your Holy Spirit through me. Because God, this is your nature. God, this is your character. And Father, help me to really, to really love my neighbour. Help me to let them know that they actually matter, that they are actually important.